0: It always amazes me that you can go into a store like Walmart or Costco or Whole Foods and you can buy this amazing nutrient for $20 or $30 on the shelf and you know the, the just hundreds of millions of dollars of assets that stand behind that product getting to you at a very reasonable price on the shelf it's, it's actually pretty amazing
1: Hello, and welcome to The Science and The Story Behind Omega-3, a podcast brought to you by Wiley Companies, where we explore one of the most researched nutrients on the planet. Listen in as global omega-3 experts and researchers translate the science, reveal personal insights, and share their stories of discovery while navigating the sea of omega-3 science joining us today. Now here's your host, Greg Lindsay.
2: Welcome back to another episode of the science and the story behind Omega-3, where we talk with experts from all over the world. My guest today was trained as a mechanical engineer at Grove City College in Pennsylvania and worked in aerospace immediately after university. In 2008, he joined the now 40-year-old family business that revolutionized the Omega-3 manufacturing process. He became a chemical engineer by osmosis through working at Wiley Companies and helped build and grow the Alaska Omega product line from initial conception. He's passionate about Omega-3 fish oils and joins us today to talk about his family's turnkey U.S. supply chain and manufacturing process. We welcome to the program, Dan Wiley. We are thrilled to have you with us today, Dan, and are excited to venture behind the scenes of how omega-3 supplements are made. Your family's been in the business of making fish oil concentrates for some time now. Would you share with us how that all got started? Sure.
0: Well, it kind of was an accident. We had the opportunity to look at some underutilized streams of fish oil from some seafood companies in the United States and our business has been in custom manufacturing of, of various nutritional products over the years and so we looked at fish oil as just another product to process and so we the more we learned about the source and the technology of manufacturing and and the benefits of what omega 3s do in the body uh, it really became a compelling story that that we were all excited to dig into and And really look at it more than just a business, but as
2: a way to put a healthy product into into people's lives. So I I know the Wiley Company story, and it's a pretty fascinating story. So do you recall the time when you made the connection between being that everyday family owned business in small town Ohio, and then that business supplied nutrients that people need globally? What was that like for you and, and for your family?
0: Well... I don't know if there was like a time when, like an aha moment to make the connection. We have been in business for about 40 years. This is our 40th year. And during that time, we've made products, various different chemical products that have gone all over the world. We've been involved in custom manufacturing of different flavors and uh, you know things like the cherry flavor that, that was used in soft drinks. Such as Cherry Coke, we've supplied products and, and and flavors and key raw materials that are used throughout the supply chain. So we've done kind of those things on small scale before. The neat thing I think about the fish oil that we produce is that it was the first time that we took a step beyond just being a contract producer where we would make something for somebody else to then sell. It was that we actually took the step to make our own ingredient brand to then sell that, and then to build upon that, my brother Sam led our Wiley's finest consumer brand. So so we kind of went from the whole end of the supply chain, sourcing, manufacturing, down through to a finished bottle that's on a shelf.
2: It's fascinating to hear how Wiley has evolved over the last 40 years, but I want to take a moment to circle back since you helped build and grow Wiley Ingredients brand, Alaska Omega. How did you start the brand? And can you tell us why you chose to produce Omega-3 concentrates from Wild Alaska Pollock? Well, I wouldn't
0: say that we chose Wild Alaska Pollock. I think that, you know, it, it chose us. You know, it was a, It was a very fortuitous connection, you know, through two different networks that we had of just, you know, we're in, our company has been historically in kind of a custom manufacturing mode. And so, when you're at a trade show and someone says, hey, can you process fish oil? You know, I I think I just have a bias towards saying yes to everything, even if you sort of think it's crazy. Like, fish oil, really? Okay. Yeah, but... On the outside, you know, I'm like, oh, of course, yeah, that's, that's something we can do. We'll definitely take a look at it. Can we get some samples? Can I get your contact information? And, you know, it just goes from there. So I wouldn't say that we like sat down and said, here's our 10-year strategic plan to process Alaska pollock oil. It was really just being exposed to the opportunity. This was an underutilized resource. Fish oil produced in Alaska was used primarily in aquaculture. So as a eel food or a a supplement for pet foods, or it was used to, to burn in, you know, diesel engines and you could blend 20% or 30% in with diesel fuel and, and get a renewable diesel fuel credit. Well, this is really an important piece of nutrition. It shouldn't be burned in a diesel engine, but, you know, a lot of supply chains, that's, that's, you know, the, the very lowest value, the easiest thing is is often to burn something like this it 's got it 's got a btu value so you burn it, but there's a nutritional value and the more that we dug into this particular raw material in the supply chain, we saw hey there's something of value here, then the more that we understood about what EPA and DHA actually do in the body and how they how they support kind of a head to toe nutrition from heart health and brain health and eye health and joint health and, and reducing inflammation, it became apparent, well, you know, this isn't just a way to make some money processing a raw material. It's, you know, it's more than that. And that was, um, I think that was something that we really latched onto and, and there just some, some great things that came out of being able to process this and, and then bring
2: that, that product into the marketplace. So I think our listeners would be interested in how we get from fish swimming in the ocean to purified fish oil supplements and a bottle that they can buy on shelf.
0: Fish swimming in the ocean. Well, how we get from fish swimming in the ocean to a bottle on the shelf is a really complex supply chain. So there's an industrial fishery uh, like the Alaska Pollock fishery that, you know, hundreds of tons of fish are caught you know by a fishing vessel and those fish are then filleted or rendered into fish meal and in the case of the alaska pollock fishery that's a that's a fishery for human consumption so the fish are not caught for fish oil they're caught for human nutrition needs such as fillets uh, you know a lot of white fish fried white fish sandwiches Surimi seafood, imitation crab, those kinds of things are made from Alaska Pollock. So that's that's the primary purpose of, of catching Alaska Pollock. There's other parts of the fish that are delicacies, like the, the roe skeins, which is sold as mentaiko in, in Japan primarily. Um, and then other aspects of the fish that can be sold in different areas. But when all of that is done... The, the the trimmings of the fish, whatever is whatever is left, is cooked. It's ground and it's cooked, and uh, just like cooking a slice of bacon on a griddle, the fat renders out during that cooking process, and then that's separated through different kinds of centrifuges, and and you end up with what's called a crude fish oil and crude and fish meal. Fish meal is then sold into pet food and and aqua feed markets the fish oil is a crude oil and then that comes to a refiner and the refiner will then take that crude oil that has all the EPA and DHA and all the fat content and they will take that through a number of different purification steps generally they'll we do this and and many other manufacturers do this you know you you remove any gums or or contaminants environmental contaminants that are present in the fish oil there may be some Heavy metals that are removed during this process, as well, and then the fish oil, if it's designed to go straight into human consumption, is generally then just uh, deodorized. So then it goes it goes through a distillation process where the fish flavors, aldehydes, and ketones are removed through a high vacuum distillation process. They heat heat the oil up under pressure, remove it. And then you have what is called like a cod liver oil or a natural oil or natural triglyceride or something. If instead you're going to go to a concentrate, you would then take that oil and perform a chemical reaction where you're going to convert the oil into its ethyl ester form. So the oil comes as a triglyceride. So it's three fatty acids on a glycerol backbone. And you want to break that up, so you you break it up either into fatty acids, individual fatty acids, but almost all fish oil companies that do concentration at this point make, a, make what they call an ethyl ester, which is an, an ethanol and a, uh, and a fatty acid molecule joined together. That then allows the fish oil to be concentrated through distillation, chromatography, and freeze concentration. And a lot of other normal industrial chemical processes. And so a lot of natural products like soybean oils and different pharmaceuticals are all manufactured in, in, in kind of uh, similar types of ways. And so once that ethyl ester is then concentrated up into a desired EPA and DHA ratio and purity level, then it would be stabilized with a an antioxidant generally those are a vitamin e natural vitamin e also called a tocopherol it's blended in and then packaged into drums or you know whatever final package that that the product's sold into those products then are sent to an encapsulation plant where they'll they'll be put in between two pieces of gelatin and kind of those two pieces of gelatin are are welded together almost under heat and the oil is injected in between in in between the pieces of gelatin and those gel caps then contain the oil. They're dried to a certain humidity level, put in a bottle sealed and, and then they head off to, to wherever the retail location is. Sometimes the fish oil is, is then put into a bottle. If it's a liquid fish oil, it'll it'll be just bottled uh, just like a, salad dressing or or something like that. And so that's really kind of a long explanation, Greg, but that's, it is a very complex supply chain. You know, it always amazes me that you can go into a store like Walmart or Costco or Whole Foods and you can buy this amazing nutrient for $20 or $30 on the shelf and, you know, the, the just hundreds of millions of dollars of assets that that stand behind that product getting to you at a very reasonable price on the shelf. It's it's actually pretty amazing how how it all happens when you when you get to see how the sausage is made.
2: It is pretty amazing to hear you break that down for us, Dan. So you've talked about fish oil, but there are other sources of EPA and DHA omega three available. Where else can we find EPA and DHA? EPA and DHA
0: are really synthesized in you know single cell organisms in algae and plankton that floats in the ocean. And so small creatures like copepods and and other small crustaceans, they eat that algae or eat the plankton, and and then they're eaten in turn by krill and and those krill are and other shrimp are and other euphasids is, is really the technical term. Uh, they're eaten by fish. And, you know, so it's part of the food chain. So fish are kind of like these collectors that go around the ocean and they just eat everything they can. And they happen to eat a whole bunch of things that have EPA and DHA and a lot of other great nutrients. And that's why seafood is, is such a great, a great thing. But there's really not... I mean the the forms of EPA and DHA, or the sources of EPA and DHA. I mean it all goes right back to to an algal source, an algal source, because that's that's really where the the EPA and DHA are are truly synthesized in nature.
1: Like what you hear so far, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show.
2: Dan, you opened up to fish being collectors of EPA and DHA. I'd love for you to elaborate on that, and and maybe you can explain a little bit about the food chain as well.
0: So it goes all the way back to the single-cell organisms, the algae, that express oil in their genes and they tend to express a certain amount of EPA and DHA. So those algae are eaten by uh, krill, euphazids or shrimps. They're they're eaten by copepods and small crustaceans and those crustaceans and shrimps and krills are then eaten by fish. So as, as you go up the food chain, you know, and then the fish are eaten by Birds and sea lions and sharks or or uh, whales or you know just however and then finally and then finally you know people because uh, man tends to be at the top of the food chain so you know we can we can trace the EPA and the DHA all the way back down to those little plankton or or algae growing in the ocean and you think about the the surface of the earth is covered by you know seventy five percent water and. The plankton that grow all over the ocean in in the water, you know, I think it's more than it's more than like all the trees on Earth in terms of like uh, it's it's plant matter. It's it's a huge. I mean, it just really boggles the mind about how much algae there is out there in the ocean, and it doesn't really seem like there's that much because, hey, it's the ocean. You know, there's a lot of water, but there's a huge amount of plant life that's that's floating in the ocean.
2: Dan, as you know, industrial fisheries have been a hot topic in the news lately. Would love to get your take on the concerns surrounding sustainable fishing and overfishing.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Greg. You know, there's there's been some sensational uh, documentaries that that have been put out about fishing and and how uh, harmful it is. And it's it's true that that overfishing is a problem globally, and and that that many fisheries um most notably i think the uh the cod fishery off the georges bank you know had a, had a huge crash in the 1970s and you know it's important to remember that you know before the 1950s and 1960s this idea of sustainable fishing just wasn't really a thing i mean people people thought that the fish in the ocean were an unlimited resource you know i think that's you can always think of the the saying that, you know, well, there's always more fish in the sea. Well, there's there's not. And so in the 60s and 70s and 80s and even, even through to today, a lot of marine scientists looked at setting uh, fishing quotas and governments put in place, like especially the U.S. government, I think, uh, and European governments led the way in terms of saying like, hey, in this fishery, we're going to study it we're gonna learn about it. We're gonna learn about the breeding patterns, the the eating patterns, and we're going to only allow a certain amount of fish to be caught out of this fishery because we don't want it to collapse. We we want it to be fished in a healthy manner that can be sustained for for generations because it's a natural resource, just like you know, clear-cut logging used to be a thing, and now there's Targeted logging, where it's like, well, we're going to cut these trees, we're going to harvest these trees. Um, fishing is much the same way. It's a it's a public resource. It's a public asset of each country in their territorial waters, and so each country that has a fishing culture and a and a fishing industry, uh, they want to do whatever they can to protect that resource for future generations. So, I'm not going to say that there's nothing bad about industrial fishing. But I would say on the whole, most of the G20 countries do a very good job of managing their fisheries. They have government observers. They monitor bycatch, the non-target species that are caught along with fish. And I'll just point out that, you know, the fish oil that that we use comes from Alaska Pollock. And it has, you know, less than a 1% bycatch. So 99% of the fish that are caught... Are the target species, and that's not because the fishermen are really good. It's because the the fish school very tightly, and the way in which they're caught, they can exclude other species like salmon or cod. And you know, there's there's been a lot of areas in the oceans that are closed to fishing because of maybe there's seabird or uh, sea lion habitat. You know this this idea that fishing's bad. I think is is just really not looking at the whole picture of all the work that's done at an environmental level, at a governmental level, and by the fishermen themselves to be responsible, to not catch too much, to save some for next season, to do what they can to protect the environment. Um, it's really some of the best people who are focused on on the ecology and and the believers of the sustainability of the fishery are the fishermen themselves – because, you know, sustainability is not just about the catch or how the fish are caught. It's also about the lifestyle. There's a certain sustainability to having a fishing culture. Some countries like Iceland or Norway, having a fishing culture is just incredibly important to them and to their future as a country. And so they, they all take it very seriously and do what they can to manage the fishery and, and the resource responsibly.
2: Well, thank you for broaching that topic. And, and I like your statement. Sustainability is not just about the catch. It's also about the lifestyle. Dan, we've run out of time today, but I want to thank you so much for being with us and allowing us to take a deep dive into Omega-3s. Sure. Anytime, Greg. Happy to do so. And I also want to thank our listeners today. And listeners, as always, be healthy, be well, and fight the good fight.
1: This has been the Science and the story behind Omega-3. Thanks to our sponsor, Wiley Companies. You can find them and more information about our show at wileyco.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Any statements on this podcast are the opinion of the scientific guest and or author and have not yet been evaluated by the FDA. The information we may provide to you is designed for educational purposes only is not intended to be a substitute for informed medical advice or care. This information should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any health issues or conditions without consulting a healthcare professional. If you are experiencing a health issue or condition, we suggest you consult with your healthcare professional.